Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member here in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to the podcast in the past, which I hope you have, because there's lots of great conversations, um, I have spoken with people in every state from Maine to uh, Hawaii, Alaska to Florida, all points in between, from borough council like myself all the way to U.S. Senate, to my senators, Casey and Fetterman, which you can find in the archives. And um, every level of government's important. A lot of times people don't pay attention to things happening locally, which is where the things happen that directly impact your life. I am excited to get back to Rhode Island, where my wife is from, my wife's family's from, to Providence to talk with Sue Anderbois today. We're going to be talking about uh, a lot of issues that are big in the news nationally and locally, wherever you live, especially housing. We talk about these things. Some people are actually trying to do something about them. Sue apparently is one of those people. We'll find out if she's being successful or if it's just uh, you know, just for funsies. Uh, but she's got a good background in, in public policy, and hopefully you'll be encouraged to follow her lead and maybe run for office too. So, Sue, thank you so much for talking today. No, thanks for inviting me, Tony. It's nice to nice to join you. Yeah, I love Providence, um, the city, more than the actual spiritual development. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, so that's fine, too, depending on weird thing. Uh, so love Hope Street Pizza, love Water Fire and everything. It's a great, it's an underrated city. Um, but are you from there? Have you always been involved in Providence? Or did one day you just wake up and happen to be there like some TV movie? <laughs> yeah, so I'm not originally from Providence. I'm actually from a small town in New Jersey called New Providence, which is a little silly. Um, and I've lived in Providence for about a decade um, and got involved in local issues about two hours after I arrived. And I attended my first Rhode Island Food Policy Council meeting while my husband unpacked our boxes in our new apartment. <laughs> so what brought you what, – What was it his work, your work that brought you to Providence, Rhode Island? Yeah, it was originally my husband's work. So my husband is a is faculty at Brown University, mm-hmm. um, and then we've stayed because I love Providence. Uh, we moved here, and I, I didn't have a, I didn't know what I was going to do yet. Um, I had just finished grad school. I was looking for something meaningful, and was like Rhode Island. What? <laughs> and um, uh, love it here. It's an amazing, amazing place with awesome people. Uh, big challenges, like many places, but you know, really great people trying to work on them. So. Yeah, we've stayed because I love it. It's quirky. It's artistic. It's gritty. Um, well, gritty is Philadelphia. You can't have gritty. <laughs> yeah, I won't take gritty from Philadelphia. <laughs> now, you, um, Pennsylvania, we famously rejected New Jersey in 2022 when we resoundingly defeated Dr. Oz and made fun of that whole thing for a while. How did you <laughs> Thank get you for these- doing that. Yeah. Yeah, we're very glad, um, all things considered. Um so how were you able to get people – do people care on, on a local level that you're not from there? Because that's something I think a lot of people want to be interested in politics, but sometimes they're afraid because everyone's campaign lit is like lifetime residents, 17 genera- – my last podcast guest talked about she had 17 generations from her family from that area, which is really cool from New Mexico. But um, is that something you had to get past when you get involved in the community? It was definitely something I was worried about deciding to run for office. Pardon me. I've only been here a decade in Rhode Island terms. That's like one minute. Um, a lot of folks have like are from here. Their parents are from here. Um, it's a very tight knit place. A lot of people still live like on the same block they grew up on or, or near like in the, their childhood home. There's a lot of um, it's very tight knit. Um, and I think people really saw that I dug in from the moment that I moved here and saw that I wasn't just like a 
passing by, like doing this for my own career, that it, it, I had put in a lot of time, a lot of work in the community before deciding to run. Um, and um, people, people responded well to that and saw that this wasn't just like a Sue trying to have a political career, but this is the best way that I can be serving my community right now. And that I had had a history and track record of that for the last 10 years before deciding to run. But yeah, definitely a concern for me. And well, obviously you're concerned about the community. People, you know, people run for office generally because they have some concern, good, bad, or indifferent. But um, had you ever before this been involved in campaigns, had seen yourself running for any office, whether in Rhode Island, New Jersey, or any other providence in the country? <laughs> any other providence? I had never considered running for office before this. I've done a lot of policy work. Uh, I... Uh, I'm a policy advocate on climate issues at the state level here and mm -hmm. in other parts of New England. Um, I had been, I had done policy work back in California. I worked for state government here in Rhode Island. So I care deeply about policy and done a lot of policy, uh, but hadn't really ever considered running for office before this. I've knocked on doors for candidates, particularly um, I represent Ward 3. My neighbor in Ward 2 is a close friend of mine, uh, Chairwoman Helen Anthony. Knocked a lot of doors for her four years prior. Um, and had gotten more involved in Providence politics through um, through working with Helen and other folks um, when I was chair of Providence's, Providence's Sustainability Commission, which is a hard thing to say. Um, but yeah, before this, uh, I hadn't had any any thoughts to run for, for anything before. Yeah, and one of my podcast guests a few years ago was the former mayor in Providence, uh, Jorge oh. Alorza, who oh, yeah. um, he actually, I, I guess, had been gone to high school with my brother-in-law. Uh, which was interesting. Too funny. You, you never know the connections you'll have. Uh, and we discussed how you can work on climate issues on a city level. And that's something I'm learning too. Um, was that something you were hoping to do uh, when you were getting involved? Because it's such a big thing on, you know, comparatively a smaller level. Yeah. So climate was one of the big reasons I decided to run. So um, a lot of my work professionally has been in climate action. Mm -hmm. And Tony, you actually said it earlier, a lot of the things that impact people's lives the most, the decisions are actually being made at City Hall. Um, so here and everywhere. So um, for example, like a lot of the best climate policy is coming from cities, it's coming from small states, it's coming from some big states, but it's coming at the like very local level. And mm -hmm. a lot of how we'll adapt to climate change, uh, green infrastructure, um, all sorts of adaptation, all of that has to happen at the, all those decisions have to happen at the local level. Um, so one of the big reasons I decided to run was actually realizing, hey, we need to be doing this here. You know, you need to be doing it in Pennsylvania. They're doing it in Cambridge. You know, we need to do it in all of the places. Um, and while Mayor Lorza actually pat, um, had a really great uh, director of sustainability, great office of sustainability, they put out um, a climate justice plan. There was there was no there were there's no legislation or ordinances binding us to any of the amazing targets that uh, that he set in motion. And so. It was actually um, working on a piece of legislation with Helen Anthony in Ward 2, the Building Energy Reporting Ordinance, uh, that I decided to run because we were just seeing it not pass, not pass. I was pushing from the outside. She was pushing from the inside. And I was like, what do we need to do? And she was like, I don't know. I think you're just going to have to run for council. So, <laughs> so here I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but realizing like we needed to do all of these things at the local level. Now, when you're doing things on a local level, though, that involves running for office. Um, and when I go visit my mother-in-law, who lives off of Hope Street, um, not oh, yeah, I could give people her address because she has a Airbnb. So people want she probably would want me to give her address. But um, <laughs> I live right off of Hope Street. She's probably my neighbor. Great. <laughs> um, she's she's terrific, and, and I know there's the uh, 
I don't know if she's going to listen to this, but there's there's always those tropes on TV shows about people hating their mother-in-law. But I I think my wife likes my mom, hopefully, unless she's been lying these 10 years, 15 years. Um, I, uh, you know, I really like my mother-in-law. She does a lot. She cares about her community. Um, but every time I visit, there's a lot of signs up. People are politically engaged. So mm-hmm. to me, as someone who's, if you haven't been in office, in local office, seeing that level of engagement could be a little bit intimidating because you know there's party infrastructure there's ward politics um what did you have to do to become a candidate and in that to stand out so people knew who you were probably have to win a primary like were you prepared for what you had to do to become a candidate and win yeah i would say i knew intellectually what i needed to do to be a candidate but as you know um and have likely experienced it's um it's all consuming mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to run. One of the things I love about Ward 3, and I should meet your mother-in-law sometime. <laughs> she sounds like she's definitely my constituent. But um, this is a really, really engaged neighborhood. Um, and so we have some of the highest voter turnout in all of Rhode Island in Ward 3. Um, and people are just really engaged. They read everything you send. They have questions. They have hard questions. You know, I would go, when I was door knocking, people would ask, like, very specific questions about how I was going to fit, you know, what I would do to help fix like our pension crisis or, you know, very specific questions. Um, it wasn't just like elevator pitch things. It was like, let's dig in on mm-hmm. issues, you know, while we're standing outside in the 95 degree weather, like it was, people are engaged. Um, and so, um, that's just one of the things I love about this neighborhood, but it's a very, um, very politically active, uh, very uh, savvy neighborhood. And also I think one of the most diverse neighborhoods in all of, in all of Providence. So we have a lot of uh, religious diversity. We have a lot of racial diversity. We have a lot of economic diversity mm-hmm. in this like kind of small, roughly 15,000 person uh, ward. So um, that was the other thing of just like being able to speak to all of those folks. And there was um, a very, um, uh, I don't know the right adjective, but there was a very intense primary. <laughs> there were three of us running, um, and uh, all good people. We all like still get together. Where uh, it was a, it was almost ideal in that there were no there. It was ideal for the voters. There were no bad candidates, um, and I really tried to set myself apart as the person with the most um, experience who would actually be able to just get in there and get some things done from day one, which which I think has been true, um, but. Uh, Definitely, definitely put in the work and definitely, uh, it was very time consuming, uh, very intellectually engaging and really, I think prepped me for how time consuming and intellectually engaging being a city councilor would be. Yeah, I, I assume so. And I, I, so if you're somebody who is listening to this, who might be an outsider, um, they're interested in politics, but they're like, well, you got to start at the ground level, but even that seems hard. How do you get someone like that who maybe has, everyone's got some sort of interesting background. Um, yeah. No one, no one is nearly as boring as they think they are usually is my understanding. Um, how do you get people to kind of overcome that kind of um, personal indecisiveness uh, and uh, self doubt uh, to, to uh, consider themselves to be a candidate? Yeah, that's such a good question. I'd love your thoughts on that too, Tony. But like I was someone who never really considered myself a candidate um, uh, and as someone who would run for office. And we would joke because like when I was at door knocking, occasionally someone would like, you know, you'd knock and someone would be like, you're, that's not a politician out there, is it? I'd be like, no, it's just, oh wait, yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it took me a long time to kind of recognize myself in that way. But um, I mean, I'd also say like, get started volunteering on other campaigns and just see what it's like. See like what the work is like, see if it's something you'd enjoy. I'm a pretty introverted, fairly private person. Um, and so the getting yourself out there, it was very, I 
I'm a big advocate for causes, but suddenly having my face and my name on everything was deeply uncomfortable for me. So it was also just mm-hmm. like a good learning experience. Like if there are things that I care about that I really want to work on and this is the best way to do it, I'm just going to have to get over that. Um, but I would just say like if, they, if it seems intimidating to folks or like something that uh, is scary to them, like you can definitely do it and find, find your friends, find the people who want to support you. Um, and they can be your emotional support, but you can definitely do it. I, I don't think I'm a particularly interesting person. Um, just, just really passionate about some things. So, um, yeah, but would love to hear your thoughts on that too, Tony, as someone else who's been elected. Well, I mean, I've learned a lot from talking with so many people on the podcast as well, but I've been doing this in some level since 2002, because I've worked on campaigns for a number of years. Uh, one thing I know is that there are only so many people who are active, like people might door knock once or twice, but who are active and other elected officials are thrilled that anyone else wants to run. Like, yeah. like I am like our, I, I was one of four people that flipped our borough in 2013 to democratic over Republican, even though my borough has voted democratic since our County was Republican. So it's, it's just, there was not an active party infrastructure, but People want others to help. They don't like now. I'm like I'm so happy that I have all these other people running because it's less work for me. It's you know yeah. it's more people that can promote what I want. My state senator, state rep, and everything. People want to help more than you realize. Yeah, and people want to help like in a variety of ways. Like one of the biggest helps for me when I was running was I have a really amazing group of friends who I'm so grateful for every day. But like before the election, they would just like drop things off at my house. Like they would drop off some food or like inspiring notes. Like volunteering doesn't necessarily mean like you have to be out door knocking, you Mm -hmm. know, late at night or all day Saturday. Volunteering could be like you help write some thank you notes or it could be that you've dropped off like a little dinner so that the candidate has time to like eat um, something that's you know, not just a quick granola bar or something. So it was also great to see like how many people really wanted to help um, and all the variety of ways uh, that were helpful. It's also interesting and, and weird when you get your first like anything significant of a donation. Yeah, that's <laughs> super bonkers, yeah. Like, um, you know, for me, I wasn't getting a $1,000 donation, but our mayor did get, who is younger than me, she won by six votes or something like that. Last year, she's amazing. You know, she she was able to get some businesses because of our own success to give significant donations. And it's like, you're going to give money to me? You Okay, great. Like, it's just, it, it is an odd feeling sometimes that people are going to give that kind of faith to you. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so, but one of the reasons I reach out to you, and I want to be able to devote some time to this, is, is housing issues. I know that um, homes in your area are not cheap. Um, there, you got a lot of older home infrastructure, right? Um, I think my, my mother-in-law's house was built in, uh, I don't know, the 1300s or something. I probably, <laughs> um, and it, it's true here where we're getting new home construction, but my house is over a hundred years old, um, hard to maintain in some ways, but the new housing stock is expensive. Mm-hmm. And so was that something that you knew was a problem, an issue, and that's why you ran? Or is it something where as you're running, you can kind of see, oh, everyone keeps bringing this up? Yeah, so both. So I knew it was an issue here. And so we moved okay. here. Um, we had lived in San Francisco before this. And so some, mm. kind of saw like where the housing crisis could go. Um, I knew it was becoming an issue here in Rhode Island uh, and in Providence in particular, 
But um, especially as I was out talking with people and getting to know the neighborhood more, it was, I'd say, like top three things that would come up um, from my neighbors about just how expensive and how how little housing there was available um, uh, in the city. Uh, so it was a both and. It was both something I knew was becoming an issue, knew was getting tighter, and then was hearing a lot from the community. And you're right. We have a super old housing stock in Providence. Mm-hmm. My house is about, uh, it's almost 100 years old. Um, it's pretty hard to maintain. Uh, also, I'm just terrible at, <laughs> at projects, so I don't yeah. know for that. So I just, but, um, and we have in Rhode Island, we have the like the low, we have the awful distinction, I think, of being like the state with the least amount of housing starts in the last several years. Mm-hmm. And so we have a slightly growing population, uh, especially during the pandemic. We saw folks moving here from Boston. We saw some folks moving in from New York City. It's a slightly more defor- affordable place to live. There just isn't enough housing for the quantity of people we have, and we have not been building to keep up. And so it's like a simple supply and demand thing, too, of just like we don't have enough supply. There's more demand. And seeing what things are renting for now, like we bought our house in, uh, eight years ago or nine years ago, um, and we could, we could afford it. It's a little house. It's just me and my husband. We don't have children. It was just us and our pets. We found a small house in our neighborhood and could make it work. The house across the street from ours just sold uh, last summer for double what we paid for mm-hmm. ours just eight years ago. There's no way we could have afforded to move to this neighborhood if we were moving in now instead of instead of 10 years ago. Um, just, just a, we, I don't know where we'd be living, but it wouldn't be here. Um, and so just seeing that happen in that short of a time frame and having our my frame of reference be having having lived in the Bay area where, um, we basically lived in like a little apartment the size of this room I'm in now. <laughs> it costs the same as my mortgage. Um, like I, we can't get there. We need to, we need to be acting now. So I think there's a lot of stuff we can be doing, but, um, that was definitely one of the reasons I ran and also, um, something that came up constantly and still comes up constantly from my neighbors. Yeah. And when you talk about the housing stock and new people coming in, there's the idea in the perfect capitalist economy with with uh, uh, residential properties and housing, et cetera, that your house will be worth more over 10 years or 20 years. You will sell it, and because and you'll make a profit, someone else will buy it, and it's a fair rate change that'll happen. Yes, it gets more expensive, but at a reasonable rate. But it's hard to get people to want to sell their home when I when I bought our home over a decade ago, um, the interest rate was really low; it was under four percent. And Same. now, um, in a, I would have to buy a house that's more expensive than our house, plus that new rate. It's like, eh, it's not very attractive to sell because of that. So it's really hard to get people to move on to to leave their house, right? Yeah, and there's also nowhere to go. Like right. we haven't been building commensurate with demand. And so even if I wanted to sell my house, which I very much do not, like, there's nowhere for me to go. We haven't been building. Um, and so there's a number of things we want to do. But one of the things that uh, two of the other new counselors and I just uh, introduced was an ordinance. We're seeing, and I, you're, we're, this is happening across the country. I don't know if it's happening in your town. But just like an overwhelming quantity of these self-storage places mm-hmm. have been cropping up. And it's partly as a result of the housing crisis. Like people don't have enough, there isn't enough, there aren't enough places to live. Yeah. People are putting their stuff in storage, moving in with other people, kind of cramming in. And these storage places are just making a killing. So we currently in our zoning statute allow, or zoning ordinance, sorry, allow for, uh, there are certain zoning districts where they're allowed by right. 
and we're just, uh, we've put in an ordinance to change that and say it's not allowed by right anywhere because they're popping up everywhere, including in places that would be great for like high rises or multifamily housing. There's one popping up in my ward uh, right on the main drag, uh, right on the main street. It's actually called North Main Street um, or right off North Main Street. Um, in what used to be our old Board of Elections building, it's a beautiful building, it's historic, it's pretty old, it's a little run down, but could have been great, uh, converted into housing or something like that, uh, and it's going to be a giant five-story uh, self-storage facility. And from it, you can look across the highway and see the other latest self-storage facility that just got built like mm-hmm. two years ago. So it's really bonkers. There's one um, popping up that's going to be, I think, like 10 acres in another part of town. It's just crazy. So we're trying to... Um, prevent that as we especially as we're going into our next uh, 10 year comprehensive plan process this year uh just cut that off at the at the pass right now to say we need to be building places to house people um not building more of these uh self-storage facilities yeah so what else we have some really interesting discussions about new development one of those things is parking uh, Mm -hmm. in the sizing of buildings and sizing of apartments and you don't want things to be so small that we're abusing people's economic situation where they live in just a, a a in the closet. So how do you work with, was that something you knew to approach? Like when you got elected, you're like, you know what, if we just adjust these zoning things or did you learn along the way? Like, Oh, I didn't know we could do that. Cause I mean, I've been learning. You're always learning, but you know, what, what did you want to do when you first got elected about this issue? And then since you've been there, what have you learned that you could do? Yeah. So I'm learning constantly Good. <laughs> so be. much. And I felt like I knew a bunch going in, but man, there's like so much to know. So the self-storage thing was not something that was on my radar when I first got elected. And it came up as we kept seeing more of these crop up. And mm-hmm. there's one that popped up in my ward and my neighbors were asking me, what can we do about this? And it turned out, you know, not, sorry, I've got something on me. Um, not very much because it was allowed by right. So they weren't doing anything that wasn't currently allowed by zoning. Um, so that was just one example of like realizing, okay, well, the lever for this particular part of the problem is the zoning code. Let's let's make some updates there. Um, but I just feel like a lot of these are like peeling back the onion a bit of like, okay, if the issue is X, like where is that in ordinance or what is enabling this? What's getting in the way? Parking is another big thing that comes up in Providence. Um, looking, we're looking pretty strongly about our, at our parking minimums and whether or not we can either eliminate or really reduce our parking minimums. Um, and with that kind of goes hand in hand, like we have state level public transit. Um, it's the RIPTA system, the Rhode Island Public Transit mm-hmm. Authority, um, as opposed to city level. And so as we try and move people away from solely relying on cars, making sure that the state is also investing in the public transit Mm -hmm. system. So people have a fallback. I'm also really focused on um, non-car, non-transit options for mobility. So are we building out our bike lane infrastructure? Mm -hmm. Uh, What are our sidewalk situation look like? Um, And so we're doing some updates right now um, that were requested by folks to our green and complete streets ordinance so that we can make sure we're actually building out a connected network of bike lanes and other active mobility options so that people do have other options right now. Um, you've been to Providence, you've been on Hope street, like riding a bike on Hope street is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like, um, not a lot of and room. that is one of the, yeah, there's not a lot of room. These are just, like Providence is an old city. A lot of our streets are very skinny. Mm-hmm. Um, we currently allow parking like on both sides of many streets. And so then you have like this little bit of space in between for cars to get by. And if people are only getting around by cars, like, 
uh, it's just really dangerous for the people trying to get around either on foot or by or by bike or or other forms of active mobility, other types of rolling. Um, so anyway, those are some of the things that I'm I'm excited about. Yeah, I can uh, just keep going, so I'll stop. No, no that's, <laughs> that's why I'm talking to you, right? So um, I think the parking thing is interesting because I know from my our work here. There's always a pushback by current residents when you want to change, re- reduce parking minimums because everyone wants to be able – it's convenient to have extra parking. Yeah. For me, we only have street parking for our house really. Um, and so you know, it's hard because if my neighbor has like five cars and I have to park again – I have to park near the guy who was at the insurrection. I really don't want to park Oof. by his house. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's inconvenient. But – if you, it's kind of like the inverse of if you build it, they will come for Field of Dreams. Maybe if you shrink it, you're kind of encouraging the kind of residents that will not depend on parking and kind yeah. of discourage driving. Yeah. And also change is just hard. Yeah. Um, we have this beautiful, you've probably been on Blackstone Boulevard, which is um, about a half mile down the hill from me. And it's like this beautiful residential street and there's a strip in the middle for, that's all, um, grass that you could just walk on um and it used to be there were two lanes of traffic per side so four lanes of traffic with this like very thick median area for walking and stuff Mm -hmm. and um a prior city councilor about 10 years ago put in a bike lane there and i just can't even imagine it without the bike lane Mm -hmm. at this point so it's like one lane of traffic each way bike lane but people were and it's lovely like people drive slower i see people using that bike lane all times of day I take Blackstone Boulevard to get to my gym in the morning. So really early, like 4.30 in the morning, there's people out walking and running and riding their bike in that bike lane. Um, and But getting that pass 10 years ago was like an act of God. Like he got death yeah. threats. Like people left poop on his, like, like not even kidding, like poop on his porch. Like they were really upset. Uh, and now everybody kind of forgets. There's probably like three people mm-hmm. who are still upset about it. But it just takes some time to get used to like, oh, this is actually fine. Like we're gonna be good, uh, but it's yeah. We had an issue here. There was a there was in 2017. We have a great trail system on our county, and they were they were coming to say we want to put the trail here. It will take away a half of a lane at one part in the street. So not like forever, just in this one part. And there was this big uproar, and it's it wasn't our decision. It was like the county's decision, and they ended up going for it. My wife and I were driving it yesterday. She's like. So where did we lose that that street? Why is the parking the driving problem? I was like, oh, it's back there. Like you don't even notice it. And I think yeah. It, that, that so how do you do you think that like if you want to be an effective legislator, if you want to be effective on a local level, and you know you have to make these difficult decisions, is it that not that you just ignore people, but just know that that opposition is going to come and just fight through it? Um, you have to like educate people, build coalitions. How do you be? How can you be successful at addressing these things when there's going to be opposition? And it's not Republican Democrat opposition. It's really a very different kind of coalition and opposition. So how do you approach that and be successful? Yeah. So I think it's all the things you just said. It's coalitions. It's educating folks. And I think for me, it's also really like listening to folks because it's often that the truth is somewhere in the gooey gray center Mm -hmm. of like. Um, like we had a really uh, controversial uh, um, proposed bike path on uh, Hope Street. Uh, it was just a trial. It was a one-week trial. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see what it would look and feel like. There was actually no money in the budget for it to become a real like permanent bike lane. It was 
AARP had funded a group to do a trial. Um, and it was so controversial. And my support for it, like some people when I was like, were like you support the bike path, I'm never going to vote for you. And I was like, all right. Like, <laughs> yes, I hear you. Uh, but but I, sat, I sat down with the, and I, like I still do, a lot of people who are really, really against that bike path to hear what their concerns were and to hear like what their ideas were. And honestly, I think there were, there were some really good points to what they were saying of like, okay, how do we design this differently? So maybe we, so we have this commercial, you know this, but other people don't, we have a commercial strip on Hope Street. That's like all locally owned businesses. It's amazing. It's like one of the best places in Providence. Um, great restaurants, great, like great stores. Like it's, and they're all locally owned. A lot of the people who own those businesses live in the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. They know this neighborhood. There were some of those businesses who hated the idea of the bike lane because it would take away uh, one side of parking. Some of them were really excited about the bike lane because they wanted to bike to work, and so did their residents. So it was, or their employees. So it was a real mixed bag. Um, and then some residents were worried about the bike lane in that part because they wanted to be able to park on the street and walk to the, um, uh, the be able to get to the stores. Um, and there became this very contentious, like. The people who supported the bike lane being like, I will never shop at these stores. Um, and then some of the people who were against the bike lane just like hating on the people who were who wanted to bike. It was became very like um, very contentious. And I think a lot of how we move forward in those things is to like really listen. And there's um, if we ever did it, which I should be super clear, there's no money in the budget. People are still very nervous about, <laughs> about it. Um, there was a really good compromise of like doing it up until this one street, which is called Rochambeau. Mm-hmm. It's before most, Oh, you know where Rochambeau is. Of course there's, it's before all the businesses start. And then Rochambeau is a really wide street that connects down to the boulevard where the other part of the bike lane is. So it was like, why don't we just like not necessarily do it in this part that people find really upsetting and try it out in this other area. Um, and so I think for me, a lot of it is like being really honest with people about what I'm thinking being, but also being able to listen and say like, what are the actual concerns here? Like what's going on? How do you feel? Do you feel like you're being heard? Um, is there a place where we can meet, where we can meet in the middle mm-hmm. um, or we can meet somewhere in the middle? Maybe it's not the exact middle, but it's somewhere that's not, you know, either side. Um, and so I always just try and be really open and honest with people about what I'm thinking, what I'm hearing, want to hear from them, be open to change. Um, And I think that's part of it. I think people expect people to tell them what they want to hear or they expect politicians to not tell them the whole truth. And I'm just like, let's just be honest with each other. Let's Mm -hmm. put it all on the table and and figure out where we can find some common ground. And maybe we won't always agree, but at least we know where we're coming from and can trust each other. And in a small place like Rhode Island, like, and all places at the end of the day are pretty small, like, we're all just going to keep living in this neighborhood. Like, we're neighbors. We're going to have to bump into each other at the Seven Stars Coffee uh, or Bakery. Um, we have to be able to be civil with each other. Um, and, uh, even if there's, we're going to disagree, we have to be able to, to still like each other and, um, work together on, on other things. So, um, just that kind of basic respect of listening and communicating, uh, honestly and openly about, about, yeah, where things are at. Yeah. I, I was talking with another person who's running for his office in South Carolina recently. And he said, you have to be a notebook before you can be a textbook and if you're going to be successful at this stuff love that yeah use that greg perry um we talked about it um and you know i think listening is the most important thing but also i don't know what your meetings are like but a lot of the listening comes outside the meetings because no one shows up and so it gets harder with the lack of we talked about like 
politicians like when people participate because they can be the next candidate. They can shift the work and make do other things. But do you have that kind of, I don't know, civic apathy sometimes? I know people are engaged, but it gets frustrating when, like, you, you look around, people only show up when someone's being acknowledged or highlighted. Um, and it's hard to it's hard to find people sometimes that are willing to make things better aside from just yeah. complaining on Facebook. Mm. I mean, one of the things I love about this neighborhood is people do really show up when I, I've had a few community meetings now and we're trying to do them more regularly. I think we used to have community meetings more when there were controversial things. And now I'm like, let's just do it all the time. There's mm-hmm. always things going on. There's always things we need to be, I need to be hearing or you need, like I could be sharing. So we do them every other month. We'd had, we've had a solid like 30 to 40 people come to each one. But also I try and make myself available in other ways because some people also just like never want to go to a community meeting and that's fine. Uh, I do a lot of, we have a local coffee shop, which you've probably been to called Seven Stars. So I think of Seven Stars as my like little second office. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do a lot of one-on-ones for coffee with folks if they just want to talk things over. Uh, But I'm also like, if you just want to shoot me an email or things like that. During the campaign, I did some um, just like, uh, office hours kind of, I would say where I was going to be. And if mm-hmm. you just wanted to come chat, you could just show up there. Um, I'm going to bring that back this summer. Um, the, this first like six months being elected was like, whew, that was a lot. Of, <laughs> we just finished our budget. It's been yeah. a bit of a chaos time. So now I'm like, now I've got my sea legs under me. So um, expanding new ways to be in touch. But um, I'm finding people are, people are like, want to find ways to be engaged and want to like find those ways to plug in. Um, but yeah, it can be tough when you're, uh, yeah. Uh, one of my, my state rep, uh, Rebecca Kislak, who I just love, she's really great. She usually says that like government is best as a team sport, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. not all on the elected official. Like you need, you need the rest of the team. You know, we like the elected people have the role that they play, which is very important, but everybody else's role on the team is important too. And she's put in state level legislation, hearing it from like one or two constituents. So I normally tell people like you should show up. Like even if you're like, especially if you might only be the one or two people who shows up to things, cause then your voice is like really heard. Like your voice can have really outsized impact. Like just a couple people. Yeah. Um, yeah. We had so, that here yeah. where we had a giant median and a wide road and some residents came and said, we don't like this median. We want to get, and then it wasn't contentious at all. We just said, look, Russ, yeah, we agree. Let's get it. And then we did. We didn't do it like the next day, but we had to get the funding and it wasn't too difficult to get that to happen. So two last questions. First of all, you did have government experience or policy experience before being in office, but it, being a council member in a, in a city like Providence is different from your other thing. What oh, yeah. was something that you learned about the process that if someone's going to run for office themselves and wants to be, that they should be prepared, like, oh, keep this in mind. Like, look out for these contracts or, you know, do this, think about the timing. What is something you learned that you think is valuable for a first-time office holder? Oh, yeah. Do you mean about running or about, like, now that I'm in office? Now that you're in office, I think it's something that would be uh, good to know about, especially your kind of office. Yeah, so I'd say that's such a good question. Um I mean, ask questions of the um, the folks, like the staff, like the people who've been around for a long time. I find that our clerks are just fountains of information, and there was so much that I didn't know would happen so quickly. Mm-hmm. Like our second meeting, we were voting on the next like municipal judge and um, a few other really important things, 
And if I hadn't gotten the heads up that that was like our second meeting, <laughs> you could go in and kind of just like, it all just hits you right in the face. So, you know, make friends with your clerks, make friends with, um, uh, like some of the folks who've been there for a while. You're, um, they are just fountains of information and they're generally super delightful people. At least maybe it's just in Providence, but we have no, I think you're right. the nicest clerks and the whole city would come to a complete halt if like the clerks weren't there. Um, and some of them have been around city hall a long time. They know where everything is. If you're like, I don't know how this process works. They've seen it before. They can find the ordinance for you. They can help with this or that. Um, so I'd say that uh, would be my best advice of like, things are going to just come flying at you. Like, really respect the people who have been there and, and ask them questions. Like they, they know stuff like, mm -hmm. <laughs> and are really delightful. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think that sometimes I, I don't know if this is true with you or others, but I feel like an idiot, right? It's normal yeah. to feel dumb sometimes. And I don't mean that we are, but and that's fine. Yeah. But you feel like, Oh, I don't want to, I'm in office. I should not be asking the codes enforcer, or the borough manager or the uh, solicitor this question, but they would rather you ask the question than mess up. And then they have yeah. to clean up and then they have to clean it up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that, that, that's important to know. Um, now with all this in mind, we know the value of city government. You and I do. Um, and we know the value of government in general, hopefully, why would, especially now with all the things going on with, like you said, climate change, housing, et cetera, why would you encourage people to take the mantle and run for office themselves? Yeah, I'd say definitely do it. It is such an exciting time to be, especially in like local or state level government. I mean, the reason I ran was like this, and you said it earlier, like so many of the decisions that matter to people's lives are happening at city hall and you can have such a big impact by being in those seats. Like we need people in these seats. will like ask questions, like dig in on like what the waste management contract looks like advocate for leveraging the vast amount of federal funds that are coming down the pike for infrastructure. Like who is in these seats really truly matters. And you can have such a big impact by just by putting yourself in that seat. Um, and uh, now is such a critical time. Like, I don't know if you've seen this Tony knocking doors like locally, but People pay attention to what happens at the federal level, and it's really discouraging. Um, but you can really help that by, like, being someone people can trust at the local level mm -hmm. um, and showing them that, they're like, you know, there's people in government who are trying to do the right thing, who are, you know, listening and acting, and they're trying to involve you. And I think it's really important for people who care about transparency, who care about um, – you know, effective government who care about the issues we care about to like put themselves in those seats, not only because it's important that they're in the seats, but like it's important for other people to see that those kinds of people can run for government or run for office. Like I'll say one more thing, but like when I was knocking doors a lot, I got a lot of people being like, you and this is not me saying something nice about myself, but like people being like, you seem too nice to be in government. Right. And I was like, we should have nice people. You deserve nice people <laughs> to represent you. Like, that shouldn't be a dig, you know? Um, and isn't that part of it that everyone's perception of government is watching MSNBC or Fox News mm -hmm. and just think whatever whatever their perspective is, just thinking that, oh, the, those people in government are terrible. And, you know, with a lot of exceptions, don't get me wrong, it's not like everyone's great, but when you get to the people, people are generally a lot nicer in politics than you expect. Yeah. There's so many nice people, and you can get so much done uh, – 
just being, you know, just being yourself and being nice and working hard. And there will definitely be some times you have to like fight for things or things you have to stand up for. You definitely have to have your backbone, but like, you don't have to be mean to be effective. Like I have the, my little thing behind me from Elizabeth Warren. You don't get what you don't fight for it. You probably can't see from there, I but um, you do have to fight for things. You got to work hard, but like you could do it while being a good person. And we need more people who are willing to be that way in mm -hmm. government. And there are a lot of people like that in government. I, people, I think people don't realize that. They think it's, yeah, like MSN, like, you know, everyone fighting, but like most of the time, like I love a lot of my colleagues. I work with some really, really fantastic people and feel really lucky to get to learn from them and engage with them every day. And, um, you know, I've been really pleasantly, like, not surprised, but really have just enjoyed being able to be like, hey, I want to work on this. Who else? And, like, 10 other people raise their hands. Mm -hmm. You know, like, a lot of other folks want to work on these issues with us. So, uh, yeah, I'll just say, like, you'll have – there'll be other good people. It's important work. Get in there. Um, yeah. Great. Now, with all that in mind, you responded to me rather quickly um, to say you would talk here. If people are interested in learning from you, maybe they want to run for office themselves, maybe they're in office and they say, hey, I hear you're working on housing or climate issues, uh, that's interesting to me. What will be the best way that people can learn more about you and maybe reach out online? Yeah, people can reach out online anytime. Um the great thing about uh, my last name is my husband and I made it up, so we're the only two people in the world with the last name Anderbois, so I'm pretty easy to find. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, look it up. It's just us. Uh, we made it up. Uh, but it's, but people can go to sueanderbois.com, and all my contact information is there. Uh, email me. Uh, email is the best, but email me. Uh, send me a message through the website. Um, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Man, I really want to find someone else There's somewhere. There's still others. You can Google it later, but we, unless someone's made it up in the last, you know, add it to it. But before we got married, we did a Google search of Anderbois zero hits, and now it's just me and my husband, Scott. All right. Well, I'm going to see what I can find. Maybe I'll <laughs> convince someone else to change their name. Um, it's a good name to have. It, it's unique. And so if you ever run for something else... You know, it's it, there. It's no one there. else can pretend to be me. Yeah. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. If you're listening, and right now we're recording this in mid-June, so there's a few weeks left. You want to go to Providence for Waterfire, another cool summer yes. thing. Definitely check it out. Sue, I really appreciate our conversation and wish you the best of luck. Please update me on what you're doing. And if everyone's listening, maybe they should run for office too. Yeah. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much.